With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome into the latest episode of Fish Bites. My name is Danny Martinez, and if you feel the anger talking through the microphone, it's because I'm watching the same Sunday afternoon game that you're watching in the ninth inning, and we all probably feel in a similar fashion. Nonetheless, even though that's very close to a piece that we're going to talk about later on, the human condition of a rebuild, we're not going to get there quite yet. That won't be the only thing we talk about. We're also going to discuss a little bit about the draft. We're going to discuss some of the um, the concept around a rebuild, how it's easier to watch when the team is winning, of course, but where that might come from and if it changes anything, if there's a win or a loss or a hot streak or if they lose four in a row. We're also going to have a dialogue piece uh, that was sent in my way of where the Marlins are on track of their rebuild. It goes very well with a poll that I sent out as soon as I got that email. I'm going to share the results with you. Over 600 people voted. And we're going to look a little bit at where I personally see the rebuild at the moment, what is working for it, and what is working against it. But again, as always, every single week we start off with the pitching performance and the hitting performance of the week. And the pitching performance is a triad, really. Because I try very hard to get down to just one or two of these young arms, and I couldn't. I couldn't because when you look at Trevor Richards, Pablo Lopez, Sandy Alcantara, over their last week, they've logged 26 innings. They have only allowed three earned runs, which adds up to a 1.04 ERA. It's hard to decipher and choose between one of those three because, quite frankly, we continue to see what... We were hoping to see from them, right? The, again, the hashtag babyfaced aces, whether this team has won 13 of their last 17 or they've lost four in a row, what has been consistent has been the young arms. Now, when we see a Caleb Smith take a seat uh, or fall back a little bit from where he was, when we see a Jose Urania struggle in his last outing, it, it you need to take some solace, at least I do, that the younger arms, the ones that have always been considered the future of the Marlins rotation. They're going out there every night and they're honing their craft. This was a special week because we got to see it on the road just as much as we got to see it at home. And for those that are thinking, well, it's good that they're finally showing something. I would counter that this has been the case all year. If you look at uh, you know their ERA and their FIP, you know that I will always take a little tango and do a little dance between those two. Both of the, the, the measures have been consistent and have been positive for all three of the young pitchers in the staff. So if you first look at ERA, 
Alcantara sitting at a 3.80, Richards at a 3.31, and Lopez at a 4.26. And remember, Lopez's ERA is going to be incredibly inflated because of that 10-run inning against the Mets. You take that you know, 10-run inning out, which I know we can't do in sports, but if you do, the hypothetical, it leaves them at around a 3.4, 3.5 ERA. So there's, there's a lot of beauty in that. Now, their FIP, typically, unless we're talking about a Cy Young type of a pitcher, isn't going to be exactly on point with it. Lopez's FIP is a 3.82. He actually improves. I've discussed that with you before. Lopez, um, when we look at some of the advanced metrics, the peripherals, his stuff, his uh, season looks a lot stronger than if we just look at the traditional ERA stats. On the other hand, both Richards and Sandy have a little bit of help from their defense. To Anderson, off his glove, Rojas gets to it, and look at that, how about that? Miguel Rojas, right place, right time. Takes the deflection, shovel pass to Anderson, who somehow found Albies, and they get out number three. That's just how you draw it up. A 5-6-5 put out. Richards, FIP at the moment, 4.62. Alcantara's a 4.43. But what we're seeing here is that there are not these drastic differences that tell you that these pitchers are not performing at the rate that their ERA or their FIP says. There is something beautiful. There is something very um, able to instill optimism, able to instill growth, able to see the plan moving forward. When every five days, one of these guys is coming out into the mound and is showing you why the Marlins have such faith in this long arsenal of arms that they have. And it's doubly important when a Caleb Smith, who might have been dealing with some injuries, and we'll talk about that in a second, is starting to fall back a little bit. When a Jose Urania, who has been very, very good the last month, we discussed that on last week's podcast, has a rough outing, but then it gets answered by a Richards, by a Lopez, by a Sandy. So when it comes to pitching performance, really, you know, I'm always going to look at them as a unit because that's what they are. This Marlins starting staff is top 10 ERA in baseball for a reason. And three of the big reasons are the young baby-faced aces in Trevor Richards, Pablo Lopez, and Sandy Alcantara. On the hitting side, it's also nice to see some of the young guys picking it up. Listen, for a few weeks on this podcast, you know, all you have to do is go back two, three episodes. You're going to see Neil Walker was the guy. Neil Walker was the guy. We had the veteran piece who it was good to see perform because he could be someone that's traded at the deadline. He can be someone you get a prospect for, some solid international money to spend on international free agents for. But when you're in a rebuild, what you want to see is me having a difficult decision between Anderson and Alfaro and Cooper, which is where we are this week. You know, as soon as I say those names, I'm sure you can think in the last week a game that they uh, that they put their their stamp on, whether it was, you know, the 16 nothing game or whether it was the grand slam from Anderson or whether it's Cooper just being consistent throughout the entire week. There has been a game that one of these guys has stepped up and said, I'm going to dominate this game for my offense, and I'm going to give you all the offense that we need when Sandy and Pablo and Trevor are out there pitching six innings, uh, no uh, no earned runs allowed. You take your pick. Garrett Cooper, over the last seven games, 385, getting on base at a 50% clip, which is ridiculous, 615, two home runs, five RBIs, 
And what I love about Cooper that we don't see in an Alfaro, right? And we we probably will never see this in a George Alfaro, even though he is young. Uh, Garrett Cooper has been taking his walks this week. Something that Marlins, we've, we've started to see this. They're, they're really not great at doing this. We might not have the most patient hitters in the world. And that's kind of quite of an understatement to say, quite frankly. But Cooper has logged five walks to eight Ks over the last week. And I'm going to take that any day I can from him. He's going to hit the ball hard. He's been making contact. But to see him also get on base via the walk is a beautiful thing. Brian Anderson over the same amount of time, hitting 310, 394, 621. Two home runs, six RBIs. He's walked three times, gone on base a few other times by hit by pitch, and then has struck out nine times. Now, something about Brian Anderson that I sent out earlier, and I think is still important to discuss, is that sometimes we look at patterns with our eyes. And then when we go to the numbers and we dissect the numbers, it's not exactly what what we are actually seeing. For instance, some of us very, very, very often on Twitter say that Brian Anderson has by far been one of the unluckiest Marlins this year, right? His numbers are not on par to what they were last year. They've all dipped off quite a bit, at least the ones that you can measure, the the average, the home run per at-bat, whatever the case is, he's he's had a slight dip. But something that we continue to see is that he continues to hit the ball hard and he just continues to be unlucky. Little tamper, now it's a tough play. He'll charge, he'll glove, he'll throw to first, and they got him! What a play by Josh Donaldson! So the Marlins' challenge will be lost. It's an out. Great play by Donaldson, that saves the lead. Albies took an RBI away from him with a, with a fantastic play. He had a home run that was taken away from him earlier in the week. There's a lot that Brian Anderson has been doing that looks similar to last year, but the results have not been the same. Well, that's where baseball savant and stat cast is so important, because when you look at Brian Anderson's profile, he is the exact same player that he was last year, a very good to above average third baseman and right fielder, but third baseman and more more importantly for this point, offensive profile. His exit velocity is in the 85th percentile. His hard hit percentage is in the 95th percentile. And the rest of the peripherals that you might look at to see how he's performing on the offensive side are all average to above average. This is someone who has not taken a step back. This is someone who has, uh, you know, not fallen off or is not a sophomore slump. No, balls just aren't falling. And it just seems that every other play, a Yelich or an Albis, is taking something away from him and another RBI away from him. What I would hope is that he doesn't get frustrated. Because when you're hitting the ball, again, I'm going to say it, hard hit rate in the 95th percentile, only 5% of MLB players are hitting the ball harder than Brian Anderson. And yet your average sits around 240, you're going to be frustrated with that. So, you know, he has, I'm, I was excited to see the Grand Slam. I'm sure that, you know, finally he felt that he just caught a break on 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 a pitch or on, on a nice strike. I, whatever the case was. I was excited to see him finally get rewarded for what he has been doing, but do not allow your eyes to play a trick on you of only looking at his average and thinking, well, clearly he's fallen back. All of the numbers, all of the peripherals show that that's not the case. He's absolutely swinging at more pitches outside of the zone, but when he makes contact, which he frequently does, he is still hitting it to the moon. It's just unfortunate that someone's catching it. The third one that could be the case for this week is George Alfaro. 
333-333-556, one home run, six RBIs. He's probably the, the weakest candidate here, but I'll let you guys decide. Would it be a Garrett Cooper? Would it be a Brian Anderson? Or would it be a George Alfaro? I won't have to decide because all I'm excited about is the fact that these are the three candidates, right? You know, last week it was Harold Ramirez and he's taken a, a fall back. Absolutely. He's, he was in a rough stretch. Oh, for 16, I believe before his pinch hit double uh, Saturday night. But it's nice to see that the young guys are the ones taking this forward. And it's going to be something that we're going to discuss again in the piece of human condition and the rebuilding, what to look at, uh, why it's easier for us to see certain things when they're winning versus when they lose a game against the Braves in extra innings. But nonetheless, the young guys are leading the way. The, the young guys are performing. And for that, honestly, all Marlins fans should be excited. So this week was the MLB draft. I spoke about it in last week's podcast. In Earning the Stripes, we spoke about it the day after the the, the main portion of the draft happened, day one, day two. I, we, we spoke about it in the preview of the draft on Earning Their Stripes. You guys have had a lot of content on draft um, draft coverage. So I will not go too in-depth on the players that were selected or too in-depth on any specific tools or anything to that extent. But I think that we need to discuss the draft because for the first time in a very long time, I can't even remember if this has ever happened for the Marlins. They are considered a consensus top five draft amongst the experts. Whether you look at Pipeline, who has them, you know, every site, Baseball America, Fangrass, Pipeline, every analyst comes out and always has to uh, give a top five teams and how they performed in the draft or whatever the case may be. Pipeline has them at number four. Baseball America, this is a quote from Carlos Coyazo, who's the, the draft specialist for Baseball America. This was in an interview that he had with Andre Fernandez from The Athletic. The quote says, it's tough to grade any draft in a complete way not knowing how the players will develop and turn out, right? That makes sense. He then continues, but on pure talent, you could argue they did better, they as in the Marlins, than any other team. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he's not alone. Jim Bowden, quote, Marlins had the best draft of all 30 teams, end quote. John Heyman, he discussed it with uh, different scouts, placed the Marlins as number three overall. From all the teams, this was this was a beautiful draft, and it was one that they needed. Um, you know, I have an article on fist stripes that was just published this week, and I invite you to go on and read it at length. But the main points that I discussed was number one, they needed to win this draft. I say that it's the I said it's the worst uh, kept secret in baseball. Everyone within the Marlins offices in Little Havana knew they had to win the draft. You know, Josefito on Twitter knew. The guy with the keyboard warrior knew everybody knew that the Marlins had to win this draft. But how did they go about and do it? I, I laid out three things. Number one, for the first time in a very long time, and I'm sure that every war room, every draft room has a clear plan. I understand. But for the first time in a very long time, I could we could see it. The, the Marlins had a clear, definitive plan. I often made the illustration in the article that they were playing chess, not checkers. They had a clear plan going in. And then number two, they had an excellent execution. They had the plan. They set up the pieces the way they wanted to, and they executed it without mercy. 
And number three, which I say might even be unintended, but quite frankly, it's possible that they even put this into consideration. They had perfect timing. So what do I mean by those three statements? Well, like I said, log on to fishstripes.com. You're going to get a more comprehensive discussion and a more comprehensive layout of what I mean. But number one, the clear plan was obvious. It's something that myself, Ethan, Ian, and everyone that has talked baseball who understands even a little bit of it with the Marlins has stated over and over again, they needed bats, bats, and more bats. But not only did they need bats, they wanted to avoid volatile ones. They needed bats which, with, which had advanced approach and which were close to either honing in or mastering that hit tool. And when you go into a draft and you need bats, 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 and seven of your first 11 picks are bats, and six of those seven are college advanced bats, you know that you executed it perfectly. In J.J. Blade, which was their number, uh, their first overall, their first pick, number four overall, they got one of the most advanced, pure swinging hitters in college who also happens to have immense power, leading the division, leading the college division in home runs. They then go on and they get Cameron Meisner, who is a five-tool athlete who only dropped because he was hurt early in the year. He came back and he didn't hit the way that people expected him to hit, but he still hit. And he still has all five of those tools. Then they get the first pick that might be out of their plan, which was Nassim Nunez. And Nassim Nunez might be out of their plan because really he's not advanced bat. And he's also not in college. He's a, he's a prep. He's a high schooler. A gold glove defender is how Pipeline um, describes him. But see, then you dive into Nassim Nunez and you read what the scouts have to say about him. And they compare him to a Francisco Lindor. They compare him to an Aussie Albies. And then you realize that the Marlins must have loved him this much to go out of their plan and that it's still a bat that they feel that they can develop. God, the plan was so clear. But I have never seen a Marlins brass and a Marlins organization execute it as cleanly as they did this year. And listen, there might be some luck that falls into that. I can imagine, and I was told this, when Cameron Meisner was taken off the board, that four or five other teams had him as the next guy on their board. There's luck there. Because in other years, the Marlins were one of those four or five other teams that had the guy that was taken right ahead of them. In other years, Nassim Nunez would have been taken two steps in front. Or the guy that they had at top, the, the top pitching guy that they took, Evan Fitterer, might have not been convinced to sign. On earning their stripes, I said that I would, be, um, I would not be shocked if Fitterer decided to go to UCLA and not sign with the Marlins. That that would be by far the hardest signing, one of the hardest signings in the entire draft. Heck, the reason that so many people did not pick Evan Fitterer, so many organizations, was because of signability concerns. This is someone that was ranked as high as number 60 overall. And the Marlins got him in the mid-100s. However, per Craig Mish, who if you don't follow him on Twitter, you, you really need, you're doing yourself a disservice. Whether it's fantasy or whether it's Marlins baseball or just baseball in general, make sure you go and you follow Craig Mish and, and you subscribe to his um, Swings and Mish's podcast on Five Reason Sports. He believes that the Marlins are signing all of their uh, day one and day two picks. And that would include Evan Fitterer. Being able to get your top targeted pitching arm to sign. 
being able to get a pitcher who could easily go to UCLA and in two years come out and be a top 10 selection, most likely, because of the tools that he has to sign, and adding that to a Nassim Nunez, and adding that to a, a five-plus advanced college bats that you were able to select in this draft is the reason why a Bowden is the reason why a Heyman is the reason why a Baseball America or a Fangraphs or a Pipeline looks at this draft and says, for the first time in a decade, the Marlins have absolutely nailed it. And like I said at the beginning of my article, they needed to. When it was the only option, anything below exceptional was off the table. Those are my words, but I can guarantee you that all of the other individuals out there that talk about the draft would agree. Because the reality is that the Marlins in this rebuild are in a position where they will likely not ever get a spot better than they were in this year. Even with as bad as the offense can be this year, even with the inconsistency of the young arms and a bullpen that half of them won't be here by the time that we open up next year, failing and flopping at times, even with all of that, I don't think the Marlins will ever have a top three pick, top four pick again. So this was the year to do it, and they could not fail. And yes, we don't know what these players will become. I understand that, like Collazo said in his quote, it's tough to grade any draft in a complete fashion, not knowing how the players will develop and turn out. But on pure talent, you could argue they did better than any other team. If you're a Marlins fan and you're looking for some sort of faith, if turning a franchise on its head, if taking a farm system from 30th to 13th and likely top 10 after this draft, if all of the pitching up and down is not enough for you, I'm okay with that. But it's getting harder for you to now look at this draft and say, wow, yeah, they don't know what they're doing. This organization is going in the right direction. This organization is in a, in a rebuild, in the low points of a rebuild. But this draft was an excellent, excellent milestone and step forward towards winning. The second thing I want to talk about today, the human condition is a very interesting thing. Those of you that follow me and those of you that have heard me or heard my first episode um, when I started doing the weekly podcast for Fish Bites, know that my career is actually in clinical psychology and neuropsychology. So when I talk about a human condition, it's not because I just went out and bought a Psych 101 book. It's because I'm talking from some place of knowledge or depth. And if there is one field in psychology that's really exciting, but also really important for all of us, it's social psychology. Social psychology actually has a bad rep in the academics. For whatever reason, you know, social psychology isn't taken as serious as some of the other fields. But let me tell you something. We are social beings. So we can thank social psychologists for understanding the way that our behaviors and act and what we do and why we do it. And man, I'm not a social psychologist, but I have friends and peers that are and they would love to do an experiment and research on the Marlins mentality of fans, the Marlins fans mentality during a rebuild. And I don't blame individuals for flip-flopping back and forth during a rebuild. Because, see, at the end of the day, we tend to see things much clearer when we're surrounded by positivity 
We perform better at work when things are good at home. We see this full picture when what we're focused on is more clearly defined. And as fans, it seems that we see the plan better, whether part of the future or not, but when the players are winning, when the team is doing well. Suddenly the Marlins go and they win 13 of 17 or 13 of 18. And individuals are starting to realize the plan. Individuals are starting to understand that the Marlins farm system is where the future is at. You know, radio hosts and, and, and analysts on TV turn from talking poorly about the Marlins to talking about how it's going to pan out okay. Now, the draft helps, but tell me when was the last week that you ever heard so many analysts and so much national media members be positive with the Marlins? I don't know that if the Marlins would have been losing 15 of their last 17, if they would have all graded the draft the same way. And I know that they would say, yes, that they would have. They're being objective regardless of whether the Marlins are doing well or not. I'm not so certain. And what we see on Twitter, and that's why I, I, you know, I was just on with the Amigo and the Good Morning Amigo show, uh, which I believe is actually, we were able to put it on our podcast. So you could hear the recording if you just go down a few selections. I was on them, and, and I said right away, listen, the team's not going to continue in this 13 games of, of 17 games, 13 wins in 17 games. That's not going to happen. They're going to stabilize back. You're dealing with inconsistencies when you're talking about young players, whatever the case is. And yet it's so interesting that on Twitter, everyone all of a sudden was able to see the plan a little bit better. But nothing has changed. Nothing they could have won 13 of 17. They could have lost 13 of 17. It makes absolutely no difference from what we have discussed earlier on in the podcast. Because, see, at the end of the day, it is still about the young pitchers and the young positional pieces that might be here in the future. If the 13 wins had come on the back of Granderson, of Walker, of Sergio Romo, of individuals that are not really a part of the future here, I would be the first person to tell you, look a little bit deeper. The same way that I'll say this, if the Marlins go on and lose five or six games in a row right now, but we're still seeing Anderson play well and Alfaro play well and Garrett Cooper play well and the pitching go out and dominate, I am okay with that. And I've been okay with that since the first episode. Because the human condition allows you to see things in a better light when things are happier. When you're focused on the win-loss, all of a sudden the plan that comes behind the win-loss in 2020 and 2021 looks better. But I must ask why. Now, if the answer is, well, yes, because the wins of the 12 of 17, they came from the young pitching, and they came with Alfaro and Anderson playing well, and they came with the resurgence of Harold Ramirez and, and you know, Garrett Cooper. Now, if that is the answer, absolutely, amen, more power to you, we're on the same page. But if it is just, oh, because they're winning, I don't think so. Because their win-loss record right now is irrelevant. Not to them, not to those in the dugout, not to the people that have to cover the team, not to the manager, not to the G sure, not to anyone. But deep down inside, 
the Marlins could not win a game, and this is a little hyperbolic and a little extreme, the rest of the year. And when, you know, March 31st or April 2nd of 2020 is here and you have an opening day roster of Monta Harrison and Nissan Diaz and the rest of the young guys that have come up, it will not make a difference what happened today or that Sergio Romo blew, blew his hold opportunity, his save opportunity. And yet the human condition teaches us that in a rebuild, things are a lot more palatable when the team is winning. I get that. I understand that. But isn't that just us looking at logic and spitting in its face? Isn't that us just saying, well, I know that these wins don't really matter this year. I know that the only thing I care about is the young pitching and the young hitting. I know all of these things, Danny. And yet, I still don't care about that. I'm okay if you're that type of fan, and I'm okay if you have that type of mentality. I'm just here to tell you that the Marlins are not going to continue on 13 of 17, which I guess would now be 13 of 20. The Marlins are not going to continue in that track because this team is inconsistent, because this team does have to grow. What I told you the first week, what I told you in the middle of their 10 and 31 record, and what is the same thing that I'll tell you right now as they've won 13 of their last 20. The Miami Marlins are in year two of a rebuild. The light is coming. It is shines with Isan Diaz hitting home run after home run in the minor leagues. Although Monte is currently hurt with a minor hamstring situation, it shines every time that he steals four bases and show gold glove defense and also smashes homers. It shines every day in the affiliates where our pitchers come out and they're a top-of-the-rotation candidate. It shines at the major league level via Brian Anderson's numbers and Alfaro, who could be an all-star, and the young pitching. It shines and it's coming, but none of that shines because of a win-loss. So breathe. We can be excited that they've been doing well. But make sure that the reason they're doing well is also a part of the future. Because that's what we should be excited about. Let's wrap up with the dialogue. I got sent an email uh, talking about the, the pace of the rebuild. And the question really was, Danny, are we ahead of schedule? And the individual listed a bunch of reasons why they felt that we were ahead of schedule. So I took to Twitter. And if you saw this recently, um, you know, this will kind of be the reason that I sent out the poll. But the question was, in your opinion, the Marlins are blank of pace on their rebuild. And I said, things to consider, big league pieces, 2018-2019 draft, farm system talent and production, business side of the rebuild. And the options were that they are ahead of schedule. They are on the expected pace. They are behind the expected pace. Or don't know, so individuals could just click on that option so they can see what individuals responded. 80, I take that back. Yes. 86% of individuals selected ahead of expected pace or on expected pace. So 86% of individuals believe that the Marlins rebuild is either where it should be or better than it should be. 
8% said behind expected pace. And for that, I would, I guess they're looking at maybe the offense at the major league level. They certainly can't be looking at it at AAA, but at the major league level, or maybe, you know, that's the pessimist or that's the, the troll who's, who's voting to, to, you know, I don't know, say that the Marlins are X, Y, and Z. I would invite anyone that believes that they actually do have a reason for putting behind expectations on the podcast. I would love to have that conversation. It doesn't have to be as a full-time guest, but, you know, a five, 10-minute spot because I would be interested in hearing that type of rationality. 6% voted don't know. So then from the, from the 94% of the sample that did vote, 86% of them say on rate or on expected pace or ahead of expected pace. And I would venture to say that if I had done a follow-up question, most of them would say that they are either on rate or ahead of expectations for the same reasons that I will point out. It, it starts off with pitching, right? When you look at the minor league system, and I sent out that stat last, uh, you know, last earning their stripes, and I believe I also said on the Amigo show, Sirius XM channel 145, that 14 of the minor league pitchers have an ERA under 3.50. I don't know if that number has gone up or has gone down since I said it. But when you say that, and then you go ahead and you look at the stat that I gave you earlier, which is that Sandy has a 3.80 this year, Richards has a 3.31, and Lopez has a 4.26, whose FIP is 3.82, you quickly realize the strength of this organization. You quickly realize that the pitching is the reason that you can vote ahead of expected pace. Because when you have this type of pitching, just imagine, just imagine next year, okay? Just imagine next year if you still have this type of pitching and you added Zach Gallen to it or possibly a Jordan Yamamoto or any of the other myriad of arms that might be ready by next year. Just for a second, imagine if your lineup, and this is not by order, but if your lineup of George Alfaro, Brian Anderson, Isan Diaz, Lewis Brinson, Monte Harrison, Harold Ramirez, Garrett Cooper, and then Miguel Rojas or Jay, you know, Riddle, whoever the case is, just imagine if that offensive core gives you even a little offense next year. Then you're talking something somewhat serious for being only year three of a rebuild. Because the expectation, whether people will ever confirm this or not, internally and externally, is that 2021-2022 year, this is when we should be kicking it into hyperdrive. In 2021-2022, we should be seeing a competitive team day in and day out. We should be seeing a close to wildcard or playoff team. And some will tell you, no, we should be seeing a playoff team. But notice... I'm not talking 2021, 2022. I'm talking just next year. Next year with a rotation of a Gallon, an Alcantara, Smith, a Lopez, a Richards, an improved bullpen because they'll need it. And this is without even any free agent additions. This is just the hypothetical that I gave you of all the prospects that should be coming up like Isan Diaz and Monte Harrison and then the guys that we have up at the, at the professional uh, major league level right now. Then you're talking ahead of schedule. Now, if I had to vote on that poll, I would say that they are on schedule. I would say that they are on schedule, but they are definitely closer to ahead of schedule than behind expectations. Because when you have that pitching, 
And the defense, defense is solid too, especially with the prospects coming up. And you are able to add offensive weapons to that. Listen, 2020 could be a surprisingly fun year for Marlins fans. 2020 could be a surprisingly competitive year in that dugout. 2020 could be a surprisingly exciting campaign. Now, we're not there yet. As far as I know, it is still 2019 and it will continue to be 2019. But that 2020 train is coming. And if it's my answer, they're on pace or better. For those of you who might disagree, I really want you to let me know why. I would be interested in knowing how anyone could think they're behind schedule. When you look at the major league level, when you look at this kind of a draft that they just had, and when you also take a look at what's happening in the minor league system with Isan Diaz, Monte Harrison, and others showing that they belong. And that's without even talking about Lewis Brinson, and we'll have that conversation soon on when we think that he needs to be called up because he's performing well too. Now, I know I said that was the last thing that we're going to discuss, but I just have a few news nuggets here. The big thing, the big news, the big injury concern that we had this week was Caleb Smith. And, and we spoke about that. If you follow me on Twitter, even while the start was happening, this most recent start that he put up, you know, I discussed and Fish Stripes actually sent this out as well. His his average velocity was down. He looked uncomfortable. Joe Fasaro reported that he is uh, he was not placed on the IL, minor hip inflammation, something that should be minor where you can miss one start, maybe two starts, if it doesn't get re-aggravated while he's um, building back up his strength. The question here then, was Zach Gallen going to be the guy that they call up, or was Eliezer Hernandez going to be the guy that they called up? My guess, again, would have been Eliezer Hernandez. I don't think that um, you waste a 40-man spot at the moment and bring up Gallen. And it seems like my guess is going to be correct because they actually pulled uh, Hernandez from his scheduled start. In order to sync him up, my hypothesis is in order to sync him up with what would have been Smith's projected start, which is this upcoming Tuesday against the Cardinals. Now, that would have been a great storyline. If somehow they bring Zach Gallen up, then you're facing him against his former team. That would have been a very exciting storyline to follow. But I think from a roster construction point of view, it is likely going to be Eliezer Hernandez that gets called up, makes that spot start, especially if it's only one or two starts. And then Caleb Smith will come on right back and hopefully continue his all-star trajectory, now improved and now not dealing with fatigue. This rest is, is perfect for him, whether there really is something wrong with his hip or whether he was just having some dead arm issues or just overall fatigue. It's good to get him some rest, build up that strength, and then we'll see him back in one or two turns through the rotation. I'll leave you with our next guest for the week, just in case you are interested on following him. His name is Ed Sanabria. He will be joining us on the next podcast of Fish Bites. You can find him on Twitter at Jolly Gator. So J-O-L-L-I-G-A-T-O-R. As always, I really do hope that you appreciate this. It's, it's a uh, absolutely it's a labor of love. If you can, please leave reviews for the Fish Bites account on iTunes, on Google, on Spotify, wherever podcasts are found, we will be there. I thank you. We love you. And go fish. <laughs>